This is a prescription for fair drug prices, a podcast by ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. I'm your host, Jason Crowell, and I'm joined today by Steve Pearson, the president of ICER. In the third episode of our series, we're going to discuss who manages the drugs, all the way from the drug maker to your patient's medicine cabinet. All right, welcome back. Hey, Steve, how are you doing today? Just fine, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks for checking. And I'm excited about our conversation today because I think you're going to be able to answer some of the questions I've always had about prescription drugs. And to help set the stage, why don't we start with another common clinical scenario to illustrate what we're going to be talking about. So suppose for a second that I'm in clinic and I have a new patient, a 45-year-old man with newly diagnosed hyperlipidemia, and he's coming to see me to discuss treatment options. And so I discuss the different classes and options for medicines. And we talk about the efficacy, the safety, the tolerability, and the convenience of those medicines. And we decide to start a particular drug. And so I write the prescription. And so now I move on to the rest of my day and seeing patients. But this patient heads to the pharmacy to pick up the medicine. And the pharmacy assistant pulls his prescription and rings up his total and hands in the bag. And so this moment right here, when my patient first receives his medicine, in my mind, is really the culmination of years of time and millions of dollars of research, development manufacturing and distribution. And Steve, I admitted to you that I've never really given serious thought to who all has a role in these processes, and more importantly, how it affects the price that my patient has to pay at the pharmacy. So today we're gonna spend a few minutes thinking about what all goes on before the medicine reaches our patients, including who determines the amount of money our patients have to pay. We're gonna discuss rebates, what a formulary is and why it's so important. And I think we'll see that part of the reason why prices are so high is because There's so many players involved, which leads us to the third theme in our series, which, wait for it, is that drug prices are a spider's web. So again, there are a lot of players involved in the process, a lot of players involved in the market, a lot of complexity, and it seems like almost everyone benefits from higher prices. So my hope today is that we can simplify this process and also discuss some of the ways the process could be improved to lower drug prices for our patients. Steve, does that sound like a plan? Absolutely. This is a complex, but actually really important topic to cover. So as we start out here, do you mind if I just share with you a little of what I understand about the process and then we'll, we'll go from there. So in my mind, there are, there are manufacturers, someone has to make the drug. There are pharmacies, someone has to sell the drug. And then there are distributors, someone has to distribute the drugs from the drug makers to the pharmacies. And so these seem like the obvious players in the system in my mind and the roles seem pretty straightforward. And so when I just think about these players, it doesn't seem quite honestly all that complicated. Um, A manufacturer for my patient would would make a drug for hyperlipidemia and the distributor would buy it in bulk and distribute it to many different pharmacies, including my patient's pharmacy. And so then my patient goes and picks it up and pays some amount for a copay and the pharmacy would send a bill to my patient's insurance company for the remainder of the cost. So what am I missing? Have I got it figured out or who else is involved that I'm not thinking of here? Well, it's, it's always simple until it's not. There, there are all these different players, and uh, one of the key ones are pharmacy benefit managers. But you know, even without them, I mean, you got the basic flow right. For most outpatient drugs, the drug comes from the drug manufacturer, and it goes to a wholesaler who actually pays the drug manufacturer. It's not the pharmacy benefit manager who pays the drug manufacturer. It's not the health plan. It's a wholesaler. And so you have to, again, this idea of a web, it really is, it is true because the wholesaler then sells it to the pharmacy and the pharmacy pays the wholesaler. 
So who pays the pharmacy back for that? Well, that's when we get into the pharmacy benefit manager realm of things. And they kind of sit in between the health plan and the pharmacy. And then behind everybody is the actual employer or the plan sponsor, a labor union or other group that's sponsoring the health insurance plan. So there's money moving and actually almost always in both directions. So it, it really does get kind of complicated. But, uh, and I will say now, just because many doctors will know this, it does depend also on whether the drug is a pill, a kind of regular, if you will, outpatient prescription, or whether it's a specialty pharmaceutical, which sometimes goes through a different loop with a specialty pharmacy that kind of cuts through some of this, um, but creates its whole kind of brand new set of incentives and fees and money moving back and forth. This is one of the reasons that people have thought that drug pricing just lacks transparency. Every one of these relationships has a, a, a contract that requires confidentiality between the two parties. Money's moving back and forth. There are fees, there are percents shared this way and that way. Um, and it is a market, but it's a really tough one to follow, especially by the time the drug gets to the patient. As you said, it's very, very hard to figure out who's taken a bite out of the apple at different points in this long journey. So briefly about pharmacy benefit managers though, because we're gonna have to spend a fair amount of time talking about them. Um, they were created because insurers needed help managing pharmacy benefits, just getting you know, kind of the, the management, especially of more complicated specialty pharmaceuticals. And over time, they've grown and grown to take a larger share of the work and of the action, if you will. So they handle a lot of the logistics, but they also have a role in trying to negotiate in some sense with the drug manufacturer because they're the ones who get the rebate. And a rebate is kind of like a discount. Um, and again, the pharmacy benefit manager can share that to some extent with the insurers and the ultimate employers or plan sponsors, but they fill a really important niche in terms of their role in negotiating. And guess what? When they negotiate a price, what's part of that negotiation is the formulary, where that drug goes on the formulary, which is a really important part that ultimately plays a critical uh, kind of uh, function in what happens when the patient tries to get that drug at the pharmacy. Yeah, so I've heard about rebates, I've heard about formularies, but if I think about my individual patient going to the pharmacy to pick up his drug for hyperlipidemia, how exactly do the pharmacy benefit manager's decisions affect what he'll have to pay when he picks up his medicine? So every, you know, every one of our patients, and again, we have to remember that sometimes we focus a lot uh, on the commercial side of the health insurance world, but this is true for Medicaid um, and for patients with Medicare um, drug coverage. Um, the insurer will have a formulary. Now the formulary basically is what is covered and what's not, and on what tier, and we'll spend a little bit of time talking about tiering, but it really pretty much determines how much the patient has to pay out of pocket. Um, that's the primary function. So pharmacy benefit managers, they again, they play a role in coming up with kind of templates for formularies that insurers can use. Um, and here again, there's lots of complexity. So let's say I have a Blue Cross Blue Shield of whatever state, um, they can turn to one uh, you know, pharmacy benefit manager and say, so I want to use your standard formulary for hyperlipidemia drugs. And the 
pharmacy benefit manager would have had a pharmacy and therapeutics committee, which is actually comprised of independent doctors and experts who will have looked at the clinical evidence and kind of figured out which drugs have to be really kind of covered, you know, easily, which can be kind of maybe they're covered, maybe they're not, and which really don't have to be covered. And with that clinical evaluation done, the pharmacy benefit manager then can negotiate and decide, well, if I can get a lower price on a certain drug, maybe I will improve its spot on the formulary. I'll move it up so that patients can have it with fewer, uh, with lower out-of-pocket costs or fewer kind of uh, hurdles uh, to jump over. So that's uh, you know, a lot of what they do. They, they are responsible for a fairly large amount of that. But remember that when they give that template, that draft, if you will, formulary to a health insurer, the health insurer can usually change it. Usually in their contract, they can make their own decision around um, a, you know, a final decision on what the formulary looks like as long as it passes muster with a pharmacy and, uh, and therapeutics committee, which really is looking at the clinical information. And I'll just mention again, because the complexity is part of the message here, pharmacy benefit manager, insurer, they can make a decision around the formulary. For many, many patients who are covered by their employer's self-insured plan, especially large employers, guess who gets to make the final call on the formulary? It's the employer themselves. And they don't usually do that, but they actually have the power to step in and make a final determination on the formulary. So we still have a very complex system, but to a large extent, that original template of a formulary get that's established by a pharmacy benefit manager, that's the one that really, in many ways, has the greatest impact on what a patient sees as their drug coverage, either whether they're looking for it online before they get a prescription, or certainly once they get a prescription and are going to the pharmacy to pick it up. So I understand how, um, how that might influence a patient's ability to access a drug where it's placed on the formulary, but from the, from the pharmacy benefit manager's point of view, how does a placement on a formulary affect any kind of discount they can get on the drug? This is where tiers comes in. Now again, tiers are set up as part of a benefit design um, by the, not by the pharmacy benefit manager, but by the employer usually. So we haven't even talked about yet another player in this, which are health benefit consultants. But they come in and they knock on the door of Walmart and they say, look, I can help you save money on your healthcare costs. So why don't you go with a formulary where patients can get generics on tier one for $5 out of pocket. Then your pharmacy benefit manager will decide what's the preferred brand drug. And that'll be a lower, I mean, a relatively low out of pocket, let's say 20 five dollars then there'll be a non-preferred brand drug maybe that'll be a hundred dollars out of pocket for a month but for those really expensive drugs we're going to create a special tier tier four in this case and instead of a flat fee out of their pocket they'll have to pay what's called a co-insurance that's actually a percent of the list price and you know how expensive some of these drugs can be so imagine a 20 percent monthly charge for that that's part of your co-insurance. So again, benefit consultants come in and say, I can save you another nickel if you increase that co-insurance to 25% or 30%. And so over time, these tiers and the amount out of pocket related to them have really created a lot of 
potential for savings and a lot of opportunities for negotiation. You can look at it that way. But they have created great risk for financial toxicity. Uh, we've talked about that before on these podcasts of great risks that individuals will really face a relatively high out-of-pocket burden that in many cases is really not their fault. They can't pick a cheaper drug. They have to go for one that has a high out-of-pocket cost. So if I'm understanding this correctly, the rebate that the PBM receives is often a percentage of the list price of the drug. So don't they actually have an incentive for the list price to go up so that they receive a greater rebate? Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Now, we haven't talked that much yet about the rebate that uh, the pharmacy benefit manager gets and what happens to it. So again, it is part of the negotiation with a drug maker. So if we go back to that tier, uh, you, I remember I said there are often a preferred brand drug tier and a non-preferred brand tier, which ha can have a pretty big difference in the out-of-pocket for the patient. So the pharmacy benefit manager goes to let's say it's two different companies making drugs for hyperlipidemia. And let's say the drugs are determined by their pharmacy and therapeutics committee as being you know, roughly the same in their clinical effectiveness. So the pharmacy benefit manager can basically do a negotiation where they'll say, hey, whoever comes to me with the lower price, and by giving me a lower price, I mean a discount off your list price, I will put you in that preferred brand tier and you'll get more use, you know, your drug will get higher volume. So you may have to give me a big rebate, but you'll make it back and maybe more by more volume, more patients using your drug. So that rebate is a percent off of the list price. So you can imagine the next question, well, what happens to that rebate? Most people would assume, well, if the pharmacy benefit manager is actually negotiating on behalf of the health insurer and ultimately on behalf of the employer or the plan sponsor, then they should give it all back. That's part of it, they should pass it through. But that's not how it works. It can work that way, but for many, many years, pharmacy benefit managers kept a percent of the rebate. And if you do everything by percents, it creates this odd incentive for the list price to go up. So imagine again, let's say we've got these two companies trying to negotiate and they do want their drug to be in the preferred brand tier. So they could both say, we're starting out with a list price of $100. How am I gonna get onto that preferred brand tier? Well, I'm gonna give the pharmacy benefit manager a bigger discount, but guess what? They don't really want to lose that much money. So what they could do is increase their list price give a bigger percent rebate to the pharmacy benefit manager who therefore gets more cash. And then if they're passing a percent of that on to the employer, it's actually a win-win for them if the list price goes up. So ultimately it could still be a good deal even for the plan sponsor if you look at the true net price that they're paying. But what's happened is it's created this almost bizarre bubble of list prices in some areas going up and up and up with bigger and bigger rebates. And the people who really get hurt there are the people who are in deductible health insurance plans where they have to pay out of pocket up to a, a 1,000 or 2,000 or even more level first, um, or people who don't have insurance and are paying out of pocket. So we do have this spread between the list price and the net price that has been a problem. To be fair, um, the, the world has kind of caught up to this a bit, and pharmacy benefit managers have been under the microscope over the past few years. So 
the contracts have been changed in large part and they're not keeping a percent of that rebate anymore. They're usually being paid on a fee basis, but it's still a concern because there have been ongoing examples of areas like insulin and other kinds of drugs where there is a lot of competition where it seems like list prices have gone up with bigger rebates as a, as a result. Yeah, so Steve, you just talked about tiers and I have another question about that is I, I've heard about step therapy before and I think many physicians are, are familiar with that in terms of having to try a medicine before you can try another. Is that related to tiers or is that a different uh, thing? I'm, I'm a little confused. It's actually kind of different um, and in a way that is very important for patients. So if we stick to just pure tiering, it means that a patient can get either drug prescribed to them today there in the office. The only thing that really differs is how much they will have to pay out of pocket for it. Step therapy really says, nope, you cannot get a prescription or you can't get it filled for both drugs. You have to try drug A first before you try drug B. You will not get coverage for drug B unless you've stepped through drug A. And within that relatively simplistic formulation, lots and lots of conflict, tears, problems, uh, concerns have arisen. So for instance, usually health insurers and pharmacy benefit managers will say that they're only going to do step therapy if it's pretty clear that the two drugs really are equivalent and that there's going to be almost never a reason that you have to have the, you know, the second step drug, the more expensive drug usually. On the other hand, you know, most doctors will know that there are plenty of times when you could have a patient for whatever reason, their clinical comorbidities, um, other features of their social you know, kind of situation, and it, it just might mean that drug B is going to be the best one for them. So there's a natural tension there. Um, and built around it are all kinds of appeals processes and other things that sometimes work well, but sometimes don't. And there are always questions about what about patients who tried drug A two years ago on a different health plan, so there are no records of it. How do we prove that they tried it and it didn't work for them? Will the, you know, the new insurer kind of trust the doctor to say that that's what happened or do they need documentation? So all of these details. But the bottom line is that step therapy has become a really popular and important part of insurance coverage for drugs. And that is partly because of something else we haven't talked about, which are copay coupons. So if tiering were left to work the way it was meant to, with creating an incentive for patients to pick the less expensive drug, because it's also in their benefit, it might work. But manufacturers, drug makers, have come up with things called copay coupons, which is meant to help the patient avoid the financial pain of those co-payments and especially co-insurance. But once you take away that financial incentive uh, to pick the lower cost one, then you make tiering basically useless as a method to try to drive use towards the cheaper or you know, more cost-effective drug. So that's why step therapy has risen in use because again, going all the way back to the benefit consultants and the employer, they're looking for ways to try to hold down costs overall, when tiering doesn't work, step therapy often can, uh, because that really is a way to, in a sense, force patients to try one drug first before the other, unless they have a strong reason not to. 
it seems like with those coupons too, that if you're essentially removing any kind of barrier from the patient side of things, then, then um, you're able to ensure the patients have the access and still get all the money from the insurance company. Is that right? Yeah, copays are, are so complicated and, and controversial because overall there have been studies showing that they drive up costs um, because they, again, they eliminate financial incentives that encourage patients to take lower cost and ideally, again, clinically equivalent drugs. Um, but for many patients, again, as insurance seems to get thinner and thinner and put them more and more at risk for financial toxicity, it's easy to see why patients often need these copay coupons to help cover their out-of-pocket costs. So it, it, it's really a tough situation where these copay coupons can do good for individual patients, but are in a sense hurting everybody um, in the big picture if we can't in some way use tiering to drive more kind of cost-effective use. So they're, they're, they're and you obviously, actually Medicare has decided that they are not allowed and they're viewed as a form of kickback, but they're still very, very prominent in commercial insurance. All right, so I'm convinced this is a tangled mess. We, we've already talked about um, <laughs> one potential fix, it sounds like, that, that rebates are often not calculated any longer as a percentage of the list price, which is meant to um, remove those perverse incentives. But are there any other policies that could potentially um, unscramble some of this mess? Oh, people have been trying. And I think there's some, there's some things that can definitely be done. Again, part of the tangled web here um, is problematic in part because we can't see who's getting what money uh, on what basis. It's all part of these, of these confidential contracts. So some states have been trying to figure out if they can pass laws to in increase the transparency of these negotiations. Um, and even Medicare, there was a big move afoot to try to in a, if you will, open up the box of the pharmacy benefit manager and let people see where the money is flowing, um, at least through their, uh, their hands. Unfortunately, if you will, that seems good, right? It seems like we would all benefit from transparency. It might improve uh, competition in some ways between pharmacy benefit managers. Um, but the problem is, is that as with any negotiation, if you, if you don't keep it confidential, then maybe you can't uh, negotiate as good a price. Maybe the drug manufacturer just will not be willing to give you a lower discount because if I give it to you, pharmacy benefit manager one, then pharmacy benefit manager two, three, four, five, and everybody else is going to want it. Um, so I can't kind of play, you know, favorites and figure out how to make this work. So um, most analyses have suggested that forcing transparency into these negotiations may actually increase prices ultimately and what patients have to pay. So there's really a tension and you will find strong advocates for, for both, keeping things confidential, um, not blowing up the system and entirely blowing it up, uh, maybe even eliminating pharmacy benefit managers. Um, and the, there's a bit of, uh, of creative destruction going on in the marketplace. There are some new types of pharmacy benefit managers that are trying to spring up that will promise full transparency and no rebates. Um, but they haven't yet kind of made much of an inroad um, into the market of the large pharmacy benefit managers. Great. Well, wrapping up here, I, I guess, you know, if I take nothing else away, one, one of the take homes here is that um, the amount that my patient has to pay for a drug I prescribe really will depend in large part on its position on the formulary, which is set by the pharmacy benefit manager. 
And so it seems like that's why certain medications require, you know, much higher cost sharing than others. Um, so this nebulous entity, the pharmacy benefit manager that I, I may have not really thought much about, it seems like really is um, a, a quite a big deal when it comes to how much my patient has to pay. Absolutely. And if there were a single silver bullet, people would have used it by now. Pharmacy benefit managers exist because there was a perceived market need for them. And so to get rid of them is not so easy. Uh, one other thing that people are considering is to try to figure out if patients, what they pay out of pocket, can be linked more to the net price that's being negotiated instead of just a list price. That might help also, um, at least in the individual patient situations. But we are still going to wrestle with a very complicated web of money moving in different directions for the foreseeable future. All right, Steve, thanks so much for your time today. I think this has helped answer some questions. But you know, we've talked a lot about this negotiation process between the manufacturers and the PBMs. But I guess it makes me wonder, what, how does this influence the motivation for the manufacturer to, to develop a drug uh, or not in the first place? So I think we'll pick up there next time if that sounds good. Sounds great. All right. See you next week. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you once again for listening to A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices. In the next episode in our series, we will talk about the decisions that manufacturers make and how those decisions can affect the price of prescription drugs for our patients. We'll see you next time.